Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Good morning. How are you guys? I love getting up here and looking out and seeing all your smiling faces and realizing that you came back. And are you, are you guys so thankful for the people that lead us in worship at this place? I'm serious. Like, that's not just a lip service tip of the hat. I'm so thankful to walk in this place in the morning and know that there's a group of people who have been on their face before the Lord that are leading us in worship, and that it's not just a, a thing they do, and it's not just a Sunday morning thing, a switch they flip when they get on stage, but it's who they are, and they gladly and joyfully come here, prepare all week, and come here early and be prepared, and then get up here and just go wherever God takes them. Like, so much of what we just sang wasn't scripted, it wasn't something that was planned out beforehand, it's just a matter of being prepared and then going where you feel like God's calling you to go, and And it touches every one of our hearts in the process. And isn't it amazing that God just wants to speak to us through every means possible? He's always speaking. And I was thinking about that when we were singing, and I'm going to get into the message in a second. But I just want to encourage somebody, and maybe all of us, that that God never goes silent, but He does speak softer as we grow with Him. And I was thinking about it's like, if you come to my house and you're in my home and we're having conversation, you get to hear everything I say to the public. And if I'm talking to my son in the other room, you can hear what I say, but you don't get to be in the bedroom and hear the quiet things that I say to my wife when it's just me and her. That's just for her. And it's quieter and it's softer. And I feel like there's a lot of times where we feel like we're not hearing God and all He's doing is just waiting for us to give Him the opportunity because He wants to speak the deeper things to us. We've gone from the things that He shouts to all of His kids to the individual things that He's wanting to speak, the deep things, the secret things, the things that are just for you to hear. And He won't fight for that. He'll wait patiently. And then He'll speak when you're listening. Remember Samuel. It's a perfect example, right? Samuel. Master, did you call me? I didn't call you. Samuel, Master, was that you? I, I didn't call you. L- wait, listen, Samuel, the next time you hear that voice, try this. Try letting him know that you actually are listening and that you want to hear what he has to say. And for a lot of us, maybe God's saying our name right now. And there's so many things in life speaking. And he's just waiting for us to look and give him our attention and stop what we're doing and quiet everything else around us and maybe just get off alone with him and just say, all right, I'm listening. What do you want to tell me? Because he can shout something for everybody, but I think the individual things he likes to whisper. I think he's just waiting for people that will actually give him their attention and turn their ear towards him so that he can tell them the deep things, the secret things, the hidden things that he wants to reveal to them that are just for them. That's what intimacy is. It'd be really weird if everything I said intimately to my wife, I got up and broadcast to everyone in my life. It'd be creepy and she wouldn't like it either. (laughs) But that would be weird. And it's the same thing with God. I think it'd be really weird if we expect our relationship with Him isn't going to be to a place where He says things that are just for us. And be careful with that too when God's speaking to you. Always try to discern, God, is this just for me or is this for me to share with other people or is this just for somebody else? Because you can hold on to a word that's for somebody else and internalize it and it do no good for you. It could actually do harm for you. 
Or you can share things that were not meant to be shared with somebody that were just for you and it not do what it was supposed to do in your life. And always just be aware of that. I don't know, maybe someone needed to hear that. But how are you guys doing this morning? Are you, yeah? Like, he wants us to be so full of joy. He really does. Like, it's not just like a, oh, the joy of the Lord's my strength. Like, it's a truth. Like, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you're missing your joy, you're missing strength. And it's not okay to just live without it. Like, it's got to be one of those things that if I realize there's a lack of joy in my life, I go, wait a minute, this is not the way it's supposed to be. I don't just go on with life as normal and just accept it. It has to become like an injustice to me to where if I'm not feeling joyful, if there's no joy in my life because of who He is and what He's done and who He's called me to be, that I'm not okay with that. That I don't just sit back and say, well, I'm just in a dry season. You were never meant to be in a season without joy. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. It doesn't mean there's not seasons where you feel a heaviness because of other people or for people. Jesus got on a hill and wept over the city of Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets, how I would have loved to gather you under my wings like a mother hen does with her chicks, but you wouldn't let me. And he's weeping, but it's not because he has no joy. It's because he sees what they're missing out on and it grieves him to the point of tears. That's perfectly okay. To be so grieved for people because they don't have the joy that you have. That's why you're actually grieved is because of what you do have and you realize what they're missing out on. Not because you're empty and you look out at an empty world and you just think, well, man, I'm so grieved. Why? If you don't have something that's missing, why would you look out and grieve over the world? Jesus understands they're missing out on what the Father has for them. And because of that, He's grieved for them. But I promise you, He was still full of joy. He's still full of hope. He had to be because the principle was that which you have, you give. And if we have no joy and we have no hope, we can't give any to anybody. And He never, ever, ever expected or desired for you to have a season of your life where you walk around empty with nothing to give. You are always meant to overflow the love, the joy, the hope, the peace, the grace that the Gospel brings into your life. Always. A dry season does not mean you're crippled with no joy and no hope. That's not what that means. A wilderness season. He was alone with the Father. He was alone with the Spirit in the wilderness. So we call a wilderness season when we're going through depression. That's not a wilderness season. That's depression. That's something He came to break. Not something He came to bring. Don't allow things in your life that He came and gave His life for you not to have. Ever. That's why we have to know the Word of God, you guys. That's why it's got to be more than just something we do on a Sunday morning. It's got to become our life. Like, like Jesus was consumed with knowing the Word. You notice when the devil tempted Him, He comes back at Him right away with the Word of God, with the Word of God, with the Word. He is the Word. He could have spoke anything and it would have became the Word. But he takes the established word that's already written. Why? Because what is he saying? He's giving us a pattern and saying, you guys, you don't need a new word when you're being tempted by the enemy. The things that I have spoken already will sustain you. Because he doesn't want us out there trying to come up with something on our own. He wants us out there saying the things that he's already spoken over us with belief. Actually believing that he is the God who spoke those things and that he really means them. So Jesus just says, it's written, it's written, it's written three times. We would do really good to follow his example when the enemy comes and tries to tell us something that's contrary to the word of God. Just find that place in the word and anchor ourselves in the word and say, it's written. 
If the joy of the Lord, if it is written truly that the joy of the Lord is my strength and that He always intends for me to be strong in Him, when I'm weak, He's strong. All those verses, if all that is true, then we can every time there's a thought to allow ourselves to be anything less than joyful, we can remember it is written, your joy will be my strength. And take that to Him and grab a hold of it. Like we talked about last week with that woman with the issue of blood. Like, don't just casually, like, well, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Don't just quote something, give it lip service, and then go back to life and live where you were before you quoted the verse. Like, grab onto it, chew on it, and think about the fact that, wait a minute, you said, God, your joy is my strength. You said this, Father, and right now I feel weak and I don't feel any joy, but I know that's not your heart. I know that's not your intention. So show me what it is that's allowing my joy to be stolen out of my life, Father God. Show me what door I've opened, what window I've opened. How is the joy escaping my life? What am I believing that's not true? What am I not seeing, God? What, am, what situation am I looking at and seeing only with natural eyes? Because if I saw it with your eyes, I would have hope because you are hope. If I saw it with your eyes, God, I would know that there's a greater hope than what I'm seeing and I would grab onto that and I couldn't help but be joyful if I actually believed it. If I really believe that you will fulfill and you will complete the good work that you started, God, then there's no way I can look at somebody who looks like they're walking away from you and have anything more less than hope because I believe that you said that you would complete the good work that you started them and I know that you love them more than I do, God. And I know that your heart is moved by them more than my heart's moved. And suddenly now I'm coming to a place of faith and joy starting to rise up in me because I'm actually seeing it the way that he sees it. And now my thinking's changed and my life's actually being transformed because where once I looked and saw nothing but a reason to be depressed, I now look and see nothing but a reason to be hopeful and wait on the Lord and just stand in that place of saying, God, I know you said you'll do this. I believe you're going to do this. God, now I'm in faith. Suddenly I've moved out of a place that would steal joy and I've moved into a place of faith. Now I actually have joy. And if I am to be given a place in that person's life, I have something to give them the very thing that they're lacking. If I'm depressed and I'm more worried about their situation and I'm more depressed by their situation than they are, what happens when I get a chance to speak into their life? How can I possibly speak an encouraging word into them if I have nothing encouraging in me? Then I have to fake something. And you know what the problem with that is? Everybody knows when you're faking it. Everybody. If you don't believe it, they know. So you can come and quote something to them, but it doesn't carry any authority because it doesn't actually come from something within you. It comes from you trying to work something up that you don't even believe because if you believed it to begin with, you wouldn't be in the place you're in. You'd actually have joy. Oh, we're so far out here, but listen. Just go with me for a second, right? So if we really believe that all things pertaining to life and godliness have been given to us through the knowledge of Jesus, is there anything that we lack in this life for any situation that we find ourselves in ever? If there is there ever an excuse where we could stand before God and say, God, well, I would have if you would have done, if you would have said, if you would have given. Nothing. The truth of the matter is, is the only excuses that should be valid on earth are those that would be valid in heaven. Don't ever give yourself permission to make excuses on earth that wouldn't be valid in heaven because all things pertaining to life and godliness have been freely given to us through the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the Word. So what we do with that Word is not be condemned if we find ourselves in a place. Listen, this is the trick to it. This is the key to it. Is not to find ourselves being condemned. Why? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if I'm feeling condemned, there's one of two things going on. I'm either listening to the flesh and following after that, in which case I'm finding myself not walking in the light, not walking in the truth, not walking in fellowship with Him. 
right? Or I'm listening to the voice of the liar and I'm taking the voice of condemnation, which is the voice of the enemy, and I'm calling it conviction. I'm giving it a place in my life that it has no business having and calling the voice of the enemy the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then I'm chasing my tail because I'm trying to get him to forgive me for something he's already forgiven me for, and I don't feel any better when I pray. So I'm over there praying and asking God to forgive me for something he forgave me about so long ago that he said he would forget it and never remember it again. And he's in heaven scratching his head looking at me saying, I don't know what to do. I'm God and I know everything, but I don't know that because I said I would forget it and I can't break my own word. It it twists him in a knot in a little bit, right? Because he's bound by his word. He's not a man that he should lie. If he said that he would forgive your sin and remember them no more, he really will remember it no more. That's a good thing, but it can be a bad thing if we're trying to go to him and get him to re-forgive us for something. Because he's already forgiven and it's lost in the sea of forgetfulness. As far as he's concerned, it never happened. And if he thinks it's worth forgetting, I probably should think it's worth forgetting as well. Right? Like the only things worth forgetting are the things that he thinks are worth forgetting. That's why Paul said forgetting what lies behind. He wasn't saying I forget the good things that God's done. I forget his faithfulness. I forget the stories of of his faithfulness and the testimonies of his goodness. He wasn't saying that. He's saying everything that God has forgotten, I agree with God and I forget about it completely and I don't allow it to be part of my thinking going forward. I press forward towards the high mark of the calling in Christ Jesus. So, so if I find myself in a place where I feel like I don't have what I need, rather than being condemned by it and going, oh, I'm such a failure. See, this is what happens a lot of times in the Christian walk, is we start to internalize things and we think there must be something wrong with me. What's wrong with me? And, and so it's, it's, the, it's the reason why I don't believe in counseling that says that every time you think a bad thing or that you do something wrong, there's something wrong with you and you have to go back to a counselor and find what's wrong with you. Here's why. It's an endless cycle because when you leave counseling and you've dealt with what was wrong with you, the next time that tries to rise up, if you think that's you and you internalize it and you take ownership of that, you have no other recourse but to run back to the counselor to figure out what's wrong with me again and get healed again. The problem is is that a lot of times it's outside trying to find its way in. So it's a thought. If you weren't supposed to take every thought captive, then that would be okay and that pattern of living would be expected. But you're actually supposed to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, which means when the thought comes, a familiar thought, somebody does something and that thought comes into your head instantly. It's just a fiery dart. All it is is an old way of thinking, an old pattern of living, an old way that you used to do things. What do you do? You take that thought and you take it captive to the obedience of Christ. And so rather than saying something's wrong with me, you thank Him that nothing is wrong with you and that there was a time that you once would have acted on that impulse, acted on that thought, acted in that way, and that you're a new person, a new creation, that old things really have passed and everything really has become new and that there is nothing wrong with me. And God, I thank You that there was a time I would have responded in anger. But Your Word has come. And You said a kind word turns away wrath. So Father God, I'm going to submit myself to You. I'm going to resist the enemy. I'm going to submit to You. And I'm going to watch him flee because I'm going to speak a kind word in the face of wrath and I'm going to watch it be diffused. And and every time I manifest Jesus in that way, I win and he wins and the gospel wins and the kingdom wins and the enemy loses. Or I can sit on the ground and go, what is wrong with me? No, I'm serious. And, And this is not mocking. I found myself there. That's why I can say this. I thought I was over this. I thought I dealt with this already. I thought I was healed. How many of you guys have had those thoughts? 
It's because you're taking something that's external trying to work its way in and you're internalizing it and making it the way that you see yourself and now you have nothing left to do but agree with it rather than agree with God and say, God, I thank you that there was a time when I was an angry man, but you changed my heart and you placed your love and your joy inside of me and I no longer live according to my feelings. So even though right now my feelings would tell me that I should act this way, I choose to exalt your word above my feelings and I respond in the way that I know is right. And as I start to tell myself that and I remind myself of truth, truth comes and I find that lie is being replaced. And now there's nothing wrong with me. And actually, if there's nothing wrong with me, now I actually have something to give. So that person who is hurting that is trying to cause those things to rise up in me, I can actually respond to them in the way that Jesus would and it can actually change their life. And there's power and there's authority on that. Otherwise, all that's left for me to do is agree with that, respond in kind, and now you have two wounded people throwing bricks and seeing who can throw the hardest and the farthest and hurt each other the worst. And in the end, you have two damaged people laying there bloody with a pile of bricks around them because somebody wasn't okay in the, in the thing. Listen, one of us has to be okay. It might as well be me. One of us has to believe that all things pertaining to life and godliness really were given to me through the knowledge of His Son and that if right now I feel like I don't have something, I don't get condemned by it. I don't say there's something wrong with me and I don't say something's missing. I go to the Father and I say, God, You told me that all things pertaining to life and godliness are mine according to the knowledge that I have of Jesus. What is it that I don't know right now that's keeping me from being able to have what I need in this, in this moment? God, what am I believing that's keeping me from seeing truth? God, what am I seeing wrong? Speak, this is why those who are led by the Spirit. Why? Because He said He would lead you and guide you. He said in He, when the Spirit of truth comes, remember Jesus talked to the disciples, I have to go, don't go. We'd say the same thing. Don't we? We finger shake the disciples like, huh? Yeah, right. If Jesus is standing here in the flesh in his robe, you know the old paintings. It's better that I go. You'd be like, no, it's not. Why? He's the greatest thing you've ever known. He's Jesus in the flesh. When you need food, he multiplies it. When there's a storm, he calms it. Right? Like, it, it doesn't matter. You need more wine at the wedding? That's cool. Take the water, pour it into those vats, and now you have the best wine that anyone's ever tasted. This is the man who's walked with them for three years. Someone dies? That's okay. Just bring Jesus. Someone's sick? It's okay. Just bring Jesus. And then Jesus says, in the same way the Father sent me into the world, so I'm also going to send you. You're going to be the answer because you're going to have all things in you because when I leave, He, the Spirit of truth, will come. It's better that I go. Alright? Listen. We know the backstory, so we're like, yeah, it's better that he goes. That way everyone has the Holy Spirit. They don't know. This is real time for them. They're thinking to themselves, no, there's, it's not better that you go. Because I knew life before you, and I know life with you. And trust me, it's a whole lot better with you. And he's telling them, listen, you guys are going to have to trust me on this one. It's better that I go, because if I go, then he will come, the comfort of the Spirit of truth, and he will lead you and guide you into all truth. That's why there's no condemnation for those who are not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why? Because when you're walking according to the Spirit, you're walking according to truth. If you're not walking according to the Spirit, you're walking after the flesh. You're walking according to a lie. And so you're responding to a lie. Once you get out there and you're living in that land, you are in the devil's playground fighting a battle you were never called to fight with rules that you don't understand that are set up to make you fail and you will lose every single time because you're not even supposed to be there. You've showed up to a baseball game with football gear on. It's not going to work. It's just not. You're trying to play tennis with a baseball bat. 
it's not going to work. You're playing a game you were never called to play. You're fighting a fight you were never called to fight. You were called to fight the good fight, not the bad fight. The good fight is the one he leads you into. The bad fight is the one the flesh leads you into. Trust me, it's a bad fight and you lose every single time. Yeah? So, if I feel like I'm missing something, rather than feel like there's something wrong with me, I understand. Wait a minute, you said that I'm the hope of the world. See, that truth right there should just change us to give us joy. Jesus said, you're the hope of the world. You're the light of the world. That Christ in you, that me in you is the hope of glory. The Word of God says that Jesus is the Word. So Jesus himself has declared through his writing that you're the hope of the world. That right there should take away every single bit of something's wrong with me and I'm missing something when I find myself in a situation where I feel overwhelmed because he called me the hope of the world. Literally, like he entrusted you so much, like, like he knew and saw you and saw the things you would walk in, Shana, and said, Shana, you're the hope of the world wherever I send you, wherever I plant you, in the marriage that I put you in, in the relationship I put you in, with the children I entrust you with, you're the hope that they have. And me inside of you is the hope of them. And I'm going to put you together with Jonathan, who's also the hope for every situation I call him to, and where the, one of you guys by yourselves could only set 10 to flight, now the two of you can set 10,000 to flight because of the agreement that you have, because two people who are called to be a light in the world, a city on the hill, have come together, and the light shines even brighter because there's two of them now, and they're in agreement one with another. You're the hope of the world. See, and it's like one thing to say, like, yeah, the gospel's the hope of the world, and like, but, but start internalizing that for a minute and realize that you were called to be the hope of the world in every little place that you find yourself. So, yeah, it's this great, huge declaration that sweeps across the globe. But the way it sweeps across the globe is by individual people understanding who they are in small little places and little fires burning everywhere causes a huge fire to spread everywhere. So, Blake, you're the hope of the world at the place that you went. Like, you're the light of the world. Like, you are the light. So it makes no sense for you to go home and say, God, I just don't understand. It's so dark there. Why would you ever call me there? Well, duh, because you're called to be the light. There's a very reason that he sent you there. We're at home complaining sometimes. Oh my God, I don't know why you would put me in such a dark place. I know why he put you in such a dark place. Because you're the light of the world. You're a city on the hill. It says no one puts a, a lamp in, uh, uh, sets a lamp on fire and then hides it under a basket. They put it in a place where it sheds its light and, and put it on a lampstand so that it shines its light as far as possible. See, hiding a light in a basket would be to get all the lights and bring them together and put them all in one little place. That would be a basket. All the light would be contained in that one little place and the only way that anyone would ever have light is if they found themselves inside of the basket. If we're not careful, we'll make church that place and the only way that we'll, time that we'll walk out our Christianity and believe our Christianity and actually act like Jesus called us to act is when we're inside the basket. The problem with that is, is that everybody here is supposed to be the light of the world as well. And so it's great when a bunch of lights get together and they shine on each other and encourage each other, but, it, it's, it, but if that's the only time we're doing it, then we're missing the point. The point was that he said he lights you and puts you on a lampstand so that you illuminate. Nobody lights a, lights a light and sets it under a basket. What is he saying? He's saying you're lit for a reason. You're lit up for a purpose. There's a reason why you're on fire right now. There's a reason, Beth, why that fire burns inside of you. It's not just so that you can argue with people. That's what the enemy wanted you to think it was for a long time. You wanted, he wanted you to have an answer for everybody. Now you have a real answer and you find yourself not wanting to give it with your mouth. You want to give it with your life and you actually love people and you care more about them coming to know him than them coming to know how much you know him. I know, I was there. I promise you. 
Because why? Because you understand I'm not alive for me anymore. The whole key to a lot of this stuff, if you have your Bibles, we'll make it official and we'll, we'll turn to the Bible real quick. And I've probably quoted a few verses already, but we'll, we'll read some just to make it official. Someone came recently and they told a friend of theirs who they came with, they said, man, you're a pastor and it's a lot of Scripture. And I was thinking, that's weird that people say that because I feel like I don't use a ton of Scripture when I preach, but I realize I don't read a ton of Scripture when I preach, but there's probably a lot that comes out of my mouth because everything I say has to be grounded by the Word. Otherwise, it's just me giving you my opinion. The last thing you need is that. We've had way too much of that already. We exalt our opinion and our knowledge so much, man. We, we've formed opinions. You realize there's things that we say in church sometimes that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. The very thing we're supposed to be doing spiritual warfare against, we're up here actually doing. We're supposed to be fighting against anything that would exalt itself against what we know to be true about Him, the knowledge of God. Last thing we need is a bunch of opinions that aren't founded by the Word. Last thing. Even if they're well-meant and well-intentioned. Philippians 2. I just want to encourage you guys with this because I feel like there's a lot of people right now that are really actually stepping into what it is to walk out the gospel and are excited about going after that. And, and, and with that, there's an enemy in the land and trust me, he's real, right? Like, he's defeated, but he's real. He's been crushed, but he still has his voice box. Like his head's crushed, but for some reason his mouth still works. I don't understand how that works. It says in the last day when we look upon him, we'll say, was this the one from whom the nations trembled? Like when we see him, we're going to be like, oh my gosh, that's what you look like? That's what the word says. It says in that day when you see him, you will say, was this the one from whom the nations trembled? In other words, you'll be so shocked when you see how powerless and insignificant he is compared to Jesus. Compared to you because he's exalted you above him. Like... It's not like the God, God and the devil are opposites. They're not. Like, they're not equal opposites. It, the, the, the devil's created being, he's, he's like, he's not even on the same level as God. He's a created being that exalted himself and got prideful and talked some other people into the same sin of pride with him, other beings, other angels, and, and then decided he was going to make a move against the one who created him. He's probably the opposite of like an, you know, an angel. He's not the opposite of God. And when we see him, it says that we'll say, was this the one? You're the one? You ate my lunch that many times? You know what I mean? Like the bully dressed up in the big costume, right? The little kid, a five-year-old in a huge Godzilla costume that scares all the other kids, and then when they run off, sits there laughing, eating their lunches. Like one day, they'll see him without the costume on, and they'll be like, you're the one that ate our lunch? Come on. That's what he says we'll do. So Philippians 2, you guys there? Paul's writing to the church of Philippi. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So he's building this thing up and says, have this one thing. Everybody have the same mindset. Everybody be intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. We could stop there. 
if we would understand that we were called to have one mindset and to live with one purpose, and that is to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, how many problems would be avoided in life if nobody acted out of their own interest and out of selfishness and out of empty conceit? Think about the offenses that so many that, that just they ensnare so many people. How many of the offenses that you've struggled with could actually stand if you denied yourself and life was about seeing other people come to know him, not seeing me become to known by to other people? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. It's okay to look out for your personal interest, but it's not okay to only look out for your personal interest. Do not merely look out for personal interest, but also for the interest of others. In other words, is this good for me, and is this good for me and everyone else? Because if it's just good for me, chances are it's probably not something I should do. But if it's good for me and it's good for others, then that's probably something that's okay. Like These are simple things. Like, I'm about to say something. I'm about to do something. I'm about to respond in some way. Is this being motivated by self? Is this selfish? Because if it is, don't do it. And it's not like this checklist of like every time. It's about actually understanding who we are and why we're saved so that this is what our mind is being transformed to think like. So that it's not like this thing where every time we're about to talk, we go, wait a minute, and run through a checklist. Is this selfish? Is this empty conceit? Have I considered myself or am I considering others too? It's not like that. What he's saying is this is there's a place in Christ where we can come to where we're actually our minds are being renewed by truth and we actually think that way. And, he's, and I'll prove it here in a second. Have this attitude in yourselves. Some versions say mindset. It really means way that you think established. It's your attitude. It's your mindset. So this is what he says. Have this mindset. Have this attitude. Have this way of thinking established in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. These things are so countercultural because everybody's looking out for number. Come on, you guys. I know we walked in a building that's called a church, and now when someone asks a question, we can't answer. Otherwise, God may smite us. It's not like that, you guys. Come on. So look out for a number, because I really want to know how many people have heard this saying, right? Like, so I'm going to be looking out for number one. Why do we say that? Because we consider ourselves to be the most important part of any equation. So if anyone's going to be looked out for, the first person that's going to be looked out for is me. Then after I've got what I want, after I have what I need, then, and only then, if I have something left, then I'll look around and I'll consider other people. That's the way culture works. You don't have to teach your kids to be that way. They're born that way. The first time you see your kid, grab a toy from another kid and say, mine, you understand. They were born into Adam. They need to be born again. (laughs) Serious. Selfishness is natural and it is part of who we were born into when we're born into the fall of Adam. It's just the way it is. You don't have to teach your kids to want what other people have even if it's at their expense problem is is that some people still think like a child and act like a child and haven't put away childish things 
Because anybody here know an adult? Don't say me. <laughs> like I'm saying, don't, don't out yourself. But does anybody know anybody who maybe at one point in their life got things that others had at their expense? Who lived at other people's expense? Who wanted a feeling or wanted something and they didn't care how they got it. As long as they got it, they didn't care where they took it from and they didn't care about how it left the one they took it from after they were done. See, because that's how we're born. That's why we need to be born again. Because no one taught you to be selfish. No one taught you that if you wanted something, you took it and you didn't care how it left the person you took it from. You were born that way. That's why you have to be born again. That's why you have to be recreated, a new creation in Christ. That's why everything old has to pass away and all things have to become new. Otherwise, you'll live like a child the rest of your life and you'll have two people sometimes in a marriage. Not anyone in here, but sometimes there's two people that are married and they're both living like children and they're living at each other's expense for the things that they want and they really don't care how it leaves the person that they took it from once they get what they want. Because every now and then that person gives them something. And you have two people just getting what they can from each other and manipulating and working every angle the way that children will. You ever had a child try to manipulate you? It's so silly. Like, your kid's standing there in front of the GoPro that they've been asking you for for a year going, man, my friend Max has one of those. He's so lucky. His parents get him everything. I wish my parents got me everything. I really wish I had, and you're just sitting, and, and, and they're not looking at you, but they kind of are, because they're kind of looking to see if you're paying attention, because they're trying to manipulate. They want you to hear. You know what's crazy about that is, is that it's so easy for people outside of your situation to see you manipulating each other. It's just as silly. And God sees it. Because we can make it sound really good or we may even get really good at manipulating and nobody watching may see it. And that's even scarier because then there's no one that can call us out but Him. The better you get at something, the harder it is for people to call you on it. That's not a good thing when it's a bad thing. It's not. It's super easy for me to call Jackson out on that. Say, bud. It's called Manipulating. You're saying those things so that mom and dad will hear and respond and get you a GoPro. It's not going to work. And you probably shouldn't do that. Someone does it long enough all their life and it's really hard for people to see that they're manipulating. And then the only voice that's left that can bring correction is the voice of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we close our ears off to Him and we harden our hearts. So... And I think, I think, but I think, I, I do. I, I feel like we've taught about this a lot. We talk about this a lot. And we, like, that's not a new thing for us to say. But, and I think a lot of us get that. I really do. I feel like a lot of us get that. A lot of us get, like, the laying down our lives for other people, not doing things selfishly, not doing things because of ambition and, and selfishness. I do. I, I feel like there's a lot of people who don't live at the expense of other people. 
But there's a, 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 another side to that. Um, besides the not doing things, you know, but we, you shouldn't do this because you know, that's manipulation. You shouldn't do that because you're supposed to love other people more than yourselves. Like, as we become more like Him, naturally we want to do things for other people. And naturally we want to not do things that we used to do. And we don't want to live for love from people. We want to live from His love for people. And we, we start to walk in that. We live in that. And that starts to become the way that we live. But I got challenged recently when, with another side of that. I was reading in John in chapter 15, and he's talking to his disciples in verse 18. He says, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of this world, because I chose you out of the world, because of, of this world hates you, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept, keep my, kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, man, why would Jesus encourage his disciples with that? Like, why would he tell them, hey, the world's going to hate you, and it's because they hated me first? And I realized it was because he expected that they were going to live the same way that he lived. And he really thought that they were going to go into the world and they were really going to preach the gospel of the kingdom and they were really going to live their lives, laying down their lives for other people. And he really thought that their life would be as great a conviction to the world as his life was to the world that he was sent to. And I started wondering if... And this is not in a condemning way, but like not just glossing through it and assuming everything's peachy, I started to wonder, like, would he need to encourage me that way? Like, if Jesus was sitting talking with me, would he be like, hey, Roy, the world hates you. It's okay. Because they hated me first. He said to his disciples in another place, he said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for this is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. What was he saying? He's saying, listen to me, it's, it's not when people speak badly of you that you have to worry about it. It's when no one speaks badly about you that you need to be nervous because the only way that no one will ever speak badly about you is if you tell them what they want to hear. This is how their fathers treated the false prophets of old. The only way that I can have nobody ever speak badly about me is if I'm a false prophet and I'm telling the people what they want want to hear at the expense of what God is saying and at the expense of truth. Would he have to encourage me in that? Like, would he have to say when I'm reading emails, Roy, it's okay. Don't feel bad when they say those things to you. Worry if nobody has anything to say about you. What is he saying? He's basically saying this, you guys. He said, listen, no servant is greater than the master. What was he saying when he said that? He was telling them this. He was saying, listen, don't think that you have a better way of loving the world and showing them the Father than I do. And if they hated me, when you represent me to them and you show them what the Father's like the same way that I did, they'll probably respond to you the same way they responded to me. And the only way that can surprise you is if you think that your way is better. So don't ever consider yourself the servant greater than the master. If you think that you found this way, if nobody ever responds to you in the same way the world responded to me, there's one of two things going on. Either A, you found a better way to deliver the gospel of the kingdom in word and in deed. Or B, you're not really representing the kingdom the way that I did. And so I want to share this with you guys this morning as an encouragement. 
as a challenge, but also as an encouragement. Because I think you're getting ready to walk into a season of your life where you're going to see people start to reject you more and more. I think that as the light grows brighter, the darkness gets nervous and it starts to respond. I think that as you start to live more like Jesus, your life becomes what Jesus' life was to the people He lived around, and it was a conviction to them. He said this, right? He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. What is he saying? My life took away their excuse. Because I came as a man, and I lived the way I did as a man. And so by me doing that, I took away every excuse that they had. When you live your life the way God has called you to live in holiness, that's a joy, not a burden. It will convict the people around you that are not living the same way because your life takes away their excuse and they would rather reject you and not be around you and try to find a way to discredit you than to humble themselves, drop their pride, and ask you how you live the way that you live. And it's okay. And you know what Jesus would say? He'd say, rejoice because you've been found worthy to suffer for my name's sake. Actually be excited. Don't be excited when every single person everywhere you go loves you. Be excited when actually somebody sees so much of you and me that it convicts them. Because you don't want to be a chameleon. You just don't. You don't want to be one of those people that everywhere you go, you change what you say and you change the way that you act so that every single person in every single place loves you. They love the work you at work. They love the church you at church. They love the family you at your family. They love the the sports you at your sports. And everywhere you go, if people were to see you from one place to the next, this people wouldn't recognize this guy and these people wouldn't recognize that guy. And this is what Jesus was warning against. He said, listen, you have to live your lives in a way that as the Father sent me into the world, so I also send you. And when you're walking the way that I've called you to walk, your life will be a conviction to other people or it'll be an encouragement to other people. Jesus never had people that were indifferent. Nobody said, nah. They loved Him or they hated Him. And sometimes they loved Him and hated Him in the same week. Because the very same people that said, Hosanna, Hosanna, said, crucify Him, let His blood be upon us and upon our children. Why? Because His life convicted them. And because rather than humble themselves and allow that conviction to break them and change the way that they lived, they decided to silence the voice of the one who was convicting Him. And they thought that taking His life was the way to do it. They didn't know that that was going to bring the greatest conviction of all because the last thing He would say when He was on that cross. See, this is what they wanted. I promise you, this is what they wanted. I'm going to close up with this. But this is what they wanted. They wanted to make it so bad for him and hurt him so badly that there was no way that he would ever be able to withstand it and not get angry and respond back out of anger. They wanted him just once to say, I hate you. How could you do this to me? I don't deserve this. You guys are bad. What are you doing? I can't stand. They wanted him to respond in something but love, and they were determined to do it. So they beat him to where he was marred more than than any of the sons of man. He literally was an unrecognizable mess. And still, he just takes it. You guys ever had somebody in your life that just keeps pushing and keeps pushing and keeps pushing? They're doing the same thing they did to Jesus. They're trying to get something other than Jesus to come out of you so that they can feel okay with all the things besides Jesus that come out of them. And if you'll just give and you'll just break, you'll be their excuse and you'll be the hypocrite that they can say, see? They're pushing just like they pushed Jesus, but they push Him, they beat Him. Still, nothing. 
like a lamb led to the slaughter, silent. So they decide they're going to crucify him, but they're not going to tie his wrist because they've tied other people's wrists. They want to make this as cruel as possible. They want it to hurt. They want it to be as painful as possible. So they take spikes and they drive them through his arms. They didn't do that to other people. They hung them with ropes. But they wanted Jesus to go, Stop it! You're not worth it. That's what they wanted. That's what that spirit that was controlling them wanted. It wanted Jesus to respond in anything but love so that it could feel okay with the way that it lived. And He doesn't. And I, and I would guess that their last straw was probably... Well, we'll nail him, hands and feet, that'll do it. The crown of thorns didn't do it. The spitting on him, the grabbing his beard and pulling it out piece by piece. You know how bad that hurts? My wife tweezes my eyebrows sometimes and I want to punch her. (laughs) And I love her. (laughs) And I told her to do it, but jeez. They pull his, I don't really want to punch her. We'll edit that. Because you guys see the smile on my face on the internet, they don't. And then I'll get one of those letters and Jesus will have to come sit next to me. Woe to you and all my unsweet well of you, Roy. <laughs> no, but they pulled his beard out piece by piece. That hurts. Why did they do that? They're trying to get him to respond in anything other. They're trying to get him just once to be selfish and to do something out of selfishness and to consider himself higher than them. And they're trying just everything they could. Think about it. All the things that they did. They take a crown of thorns. They shove it into his forehead. Why? They think that will do it. And they're running out of time because this guy's going to die at some point. They don't understand. They could have beat him from that day until today until he became sin and the curse of sin was upon him. He couldn't die. That's why they could beat him to the point that they beat him and him not die. It's physically impossible for you to be beat like that and then grab a cross and carry it up a hill. He did it. Why? He hadn't taken the curse on yet. So they're probably thinking, okay, well, this, is, this will do it. We'll nail him to the cross. If that doesn't do it, we'll stand that thing up and it'll drop about two to three feet. And instead of him having a wood block under his feet for him to hold him up, we got his feet nailed. So when that happens and he drops three feet and the only thing that stops his body from falling is the nails that are holding him in there, that'll do it. Boom! The thing slams down and then Jesus tenses up and then he's still not selfish. We'll mock him. Physical pain obviously doesn't hurt this guy. Let's use our words. You ever had somebody that just will not be quiet? They keep at you with their words. They keep at you. Why? They're trying and digging for a response other than love. See it for what it is and don't give in to it. You who saved the, 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 all these people and are going to do all these things, if that's who you really are, why don't you come on down, King of the Jews? They're mocking Him with their words, trying to get Him to respond out of selfishness, trying to get Him to be self-defending and self-preserving, trying to get anything but love to come out of Him. What are the only words that come out of Him? I'm thirsty. That's the first one. Why? Just to fulfill prophecy. What's the last words that come out of Him? Pure love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What was he saying when he said that? He's saying to all of them, you guys, if you don't understand it now, there's a day coming. I'm not here for me. You can beat me. You can nail me. 
You can shove thorns in my head. You can pluck my beard out. You can punch me in the face and ask me to prophesy and tell you who did it. You're not going to get a response but love that comes out of me because it's who I am. That's why we have to be born again and be a new creation with a heart of flesh placed inside of us and a heart to know Him and become love so that it's not the things that come out of us or things that we do. It's because it's who we are. So that when people do those things, they poke, they push, they prod. All they're doing is saying this. Listen, take heart. This is why Peter says rejoice. I know we're going a little bit long. I'm sorry. I apologize. We're finished up in a second. But Peter says rejoice when you're found worthy of suffering for his name's sake. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, all they are doing is being convicted by your life and they're trying to get you to act in a way inconsistent with the gospel so that they can write your life off and so that they can silence that conviction that it brings into their life. That's all they're trying to do. It's why he's mean to you. It's why he says the things he says to you. He's just trying to get you to respond in the way that he's always responded so that he can feel better about the way he responds. And when you don't, it convicts him even more. And that's why he won't talk to you anymore. Because he tried his hardest to get you to respond the way that he's always responded. And when you didn't, it convicted him even more. And the only way that he could not feel convicted by it anymore was to keep just cut you out of his life and not have to deal with the fact that no matter what he says to you, you respond in love. It's okay. You can weep for them, but don't let that steal your joy. Be encouraged and actually let your joy increase because you understand that my life, just like Jesus' life, actually is a conviction to people. It's not permission for them to stay the same. It's a conviction for them to change. And you need to know that because the more called out, the more separated you are, the more holy, the more righteousness, the more joy you walk in, the more it's going to happen to you and the more people are going to come after you. And you need to not let that be something that steals your joy. You actually need to let it be something that fuels the fire within you so that you can actually rejoice in those times and say, God, I thank you that I look so much like you that people that hate you hate me. God, I just ask that these words would not just be words, Father, but they would go so deep in our spirit, God, that the next time we feel one of these attacks come, these pokings and proddings, and the next time my life convicts somebody, the next time, God, that I would find comfort in your words that say that if the world loved me, they'd love you. But because they hated me first, they hate you. Rejoice when you find yourself suffering for my name's sake that you've been found worthy. Rejoice when those people can't stand to be around you. It's okay. It's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because there's something very, very right in you that the Spirit that's in them cannot be around. It cannot be around and it can't stand to be in the presence of. They're not running from you. They're running from Him in you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Him in you. Keep responding in love. Keep going. It's worth it. Father, I just ask that these things would be sealed up by Your Spirit in our heart. I thank You for what You're calling us into, for who You've called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen.